Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of The Pactum. I'm Mike Grimes here today with Pat Abendroth. It is episode 38. Mike, I can't believe we're doing episode 38. It's so great to see you and be with you and it's great to be joining the Pactumverse listenership for this special episode. Yeah, we're not far from a year. You know, my kids keep counting down. How long have you been doing The Pactum? Has it been a year yet? I'm still married, so that's kind of a good sign of God's grace. <laughs> We've been doing a lot of these. We're getting there. So I'm grateful today because we have a special episode. We have a special episode not only because we're in our studio in your parents' basement. Yes. I kid. The secret bunker. But we have a special episode because we actually have a live studio audience. We do. Uh-huh. First and time ever. We made them take a vow of silence. Yep. And they've silenced their phones. Yes. But it's going to add to the <laughs> dynamic. Yeah. I'm actually excited not just because of that, and I'm not kidding, but I'm excited because we're talking about one of my very favorite topics. One of my very favorite topics is the covenant of works. And our guest today has not only written one book on the covenant of works, not just one, he's actually written two books on the covenant of works. And so we have the double barrel anointing special (laughs) author in the house. That means our guest is the one who is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's professor of systematic and historic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, Jackson, Mississippi. He's the author not only of two two books on the Covenant of Works, he's also author or editor of over 20 books. Mm. My favorite one being Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine, maybe in part because it talks about the covenant of works. Probably so. Uh huh. Our very special guest in studio today is none other than J.V. Fesco. Hi, John, and welcome to the Pactum. Pat, it's great to be here with you guys. Yeah. We're going to have a great time looking forward to this. Speaking of that newest book on the covenant of works, we did our best to get a copy from mm-hmm. across the pond. Okay. I'm told they would only give us 15, I think it was like 60% off, so you might not get a big get a big cut from oh, that. Oh, that's okay. But I, I've, I've been told from our bookstore, maybe it's going to come tomorrow. Okay, all right. So otherwise not available in the U.S. yet. Okay, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. I wanted to impress you with the one in my hot little <laughs> hand, but we don't have one. So anyway. I should have brought one. Okay, fair enough, fair I, enough. I failed. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a bunch of questions, or we have several questions several, because we because have we several like listeners. Yes. Yep. We have uh, a number of questions, let's put it that way, for you regarding the Covenant of Works, so we can have a good discussion about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pactum Podcast has listeners who are brand new to the Christian faith, uh, some who are pastors, some who are professors, so it kind of runs the gamut. So let's not assume anything. First question is, can you tell us what a covenant is, John, and can you talk about the Covenant of Works? You know, the most fundamental definition of a covenant, I think, comes from the children's catechism, which is really simple, obviously aimed at children, but I think it captures uh, deep truth in a simple way, and it says that a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, and that's pretty much it. Now, that being said, uh, there's a whole number of different ways that an agreement can come about. It all depends upon who's making the agreement, who are the parties you know, to this agreement. Are we talking about people that are equals? Are we talking about one who is superior to the other, that it's a superior or an inferior? Are we talking about an agreement where um, you have obligations and I have obligations, or is it that I'm just basically making a, a promise to you and it's an understanding that we have, it's an agreement? And I remember reading in a book uh, written by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes where he was talking about contract law, and he said that imagine that a truckman 
which I guess is somebody who hauls things in trucks, mm-hmm. he says, makes an agreement or makes a contract to carry a barrel of whiskey from Boston to Philadelphia, one of those two cities. Okay. He says that is a contract, that is an agreement, even though the truckman is doing it entirely uh, upon himself in that he's not requiring any payment. It's just a gratuitous promise on his part. It's nevertheless an agreement. Okay. And so that's why we can say that at its most fundamental level, it's an agreement between two or more persons. But that being said, it's also uh, going to depend upon when we're talking about various passages of Scripture. You know, who who are we talking about? Is this God and Adam in the Garden of Eden? Is this God and Noah and the, the creation? Is this God and Abraham? Is this uh, God and uh, the elect sinners in Christ in the New Covenant? So it just depends, and so we want to be flexible in how we would define the nature of the covenant in terms of its particulars, uh, and we don't want to just put a straitjacket on it and say it's always going to look like this. That's why we just say fundamentally it's an agreement, but then we have to pay a part, particular attention to what the text says in each each location so that we understand uh, what are the specifics of that particular agreement. Okay, that's helpful because we don't want to say it's a bond in blood, right. sovereignly administered, because yeah. there may not be blood involved, right? Right. Marriage yeah. is a covenant, yeah. so between a man and a woman. Yeah. So I appreciate the fact that you're keeping it nice and lean. Yeah. Before we get into the details. Yeah. So if can we give our listeners maybe at least a passing grade if we were mm-hmm. to quiz them and say, tell us what a covenant is, and mm-hmm. they could say it's an agreement? Yeah, sure. What do you think? A C? C plus? No, oh, I'd say well, that's, a, that's a solid A because we're looking for a oh. very, very okay, basic answer. Okay, good. Excellent. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's talk about – now that we have talked about a covenant, let's move forward and talk about what is the covenant of works mm-hmm. in a real basic sense before mm-hmm. we get too deep into things. Yeah. One of the things that uh, – you want to take note of is is that when uh, God can make a covenant, he can make an agreement in a number of different ways. In Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10, one of the things that uh, the psalmist talks about is he says his covenant that he made with Israel, his sworn oath that he made to um, to um, Abraham, and his uh, statutes that he gave to Isaac. Uh, and so there's a number of different terms that are used interchangeably there, a sworn oath or a promise, uh, the, the giving of a law. And so when God issues his command to uh, Adam and Eve, and he does this two different ways, first he says, I'm going to bless you. And he says, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill all the earth and subdue it. That's the blessing side of this now okay. bond that okay. exists between Adam and Eve. So they have a responsibility to to fill the earth and to subdue it. But then there's a second one, and this is another piece of the puzzle that you see in covenants, especially whenever we're dealing with covenants with uh, with God or even with human beings. There are blessings, and then there are also consequences of violating those covenants. There are curses. And so God gives his command, a second command in Genesis two sixteen and 17, when he says, uh, don't eat from this tree, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right. And right. so that's the curse side of the covenant. And so God gives Adam two, two commands, and this binds Adam in a covenant relationship with God, and that he says, you have to fill all the earth, subdue it, and be fruitful. And then on the other hand, you know, do not eat from this tree. And if you eat from this tree, uh, you're going to suffer the curse of the covenant, and you, and you will die. Uh, and so... Uh, if we were to define that very simply, we would say that the covenant of works is the covenant or the agreement that God makes with Adam in the garden uh, to exercise dominion over the creation. 
and on the penalty of uh, a death if he violates it by, you know, eating from the tree. Okay. So, and God has every right to do this with Adam and Eve, and Adam in particular, because Mm -hmm. he's the creator Mm -hmm. and they're the creature. Yep. Were they in a covenantal relationship even before anything was said? Just curious to know your thoughts. Yes. You know, the way I talk about this in the book is that you can talk about the covenant either materially or formally. And if we, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to say that materially, just by virtue of the fact that Adam is an image bearer of God. And it's not that God would come to Adam and Adam, he would say, all right, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And Adam could say, "Eh, you know what? I'm just not interested. You know, I'd rather not. Uh, You know, no thanks. Uh, I'll just hang out here in the garden. Um, No, by virtue of the fact that he's an image bearer, that means that he's he's he, this is the material, if you will, the substance that makes up this agreement, this bond, this relationship. There, you could I think you could say that there's a parallel in that. For example, when you say that there's a natural material bond between me and my son, my son is an image bearer. I'm his father, and he has obligations to me just by virtue of being born into my home. Okay, and so we could say that. But formally, there's the formal administration of the covenant. When God issues the commands, Genesis one twenty eight, Genesis two sixteen and seventeen, He formalizes the relationship, and so just as my son is an image bearer and he has natural obligations to me as an image bearer and as my image bearer in particular, I can formalize it and I can say, I'll pay you ten bucks if you clean your room, and if you don't, you're going to have to I don't know do the laundry in the house for the next month. That's never happened, uh, you know, okay. and you know, but anyway. You get the idea. There's a formal version or a formal, if you will, administration of that relationship. And so I think that's the way we can look at it to say that, yeah, there are natural obligations just by virtue of Adam's creation in in God's image. But then it's all formalized with the administration of those commands. Be fruitful and don't eat from the tree. So I want to move on a little bit. Mike, did you have something you wanted to say on the lighter side of things? Well, I was just going to ask you, you know, John, on the Pactum, we know a lot of our listeners expect us every week to talk about coffee, to talk about food, to talk about all sorts of really controversial, exciting topics. So I first wanted to ask you, are you a five-point Calvinist coffee drinker? Like, we're talking black coffee, or do you enjoy some of the finer things in life, like a pumpkin spice latte? You know, where are you you at on that spectrum? This is important material here. Java Arminianism. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm going to get in probably into a lot of trouble here with this answer. Just because I I don't drink coffee. <laughs> what? Okay. I don't. Drink thank you for joining us, drinking, everyone. That's better than doing pumpkin spice latte. Come I love on. the pumpkin spice, man. Yeah, it's, we know you. Do. I know. I we just want to make sure we bring that up again. You know, it's important. I'll tell you what my poison is. Is my poison is is, uh, and this is probably going to get me ruthless <laughs> ribbing, but um, uh, I I love kombucha. Oh really? Yeah, I love kombucha. So I, I do you do it yourself. You guys have the oh, scoby and all that jazz. N- no way, I wouldn't risk it. I'd kill myself. Do you wear deodorant at your house? <laughs> oh yes, we do. <laughs> okay, just check. We're all. In fact, it's old. We're spice, not in Boulder, so. and and Mr. Fesco is not Boulder dude. <laughs> no, no, I, I get mine from Costco. So it's like there I'm, I'm okay. not. I'm not making oh, that stuff. Sold just, out to the man yep, kombucha. Yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> yes. I'm corporate kombucha. <laughs> hey, we, that sounds like a podcast name. Corporate something like kombucha. That. That's it's good. kind of like nice, it. right? We're going to have to yeah. introduce that as a special segment. Yeah. Well, maybe getting back to the Covenant of Works, John, where do you find the Covenant of Works in the Bible? You know, if we do a Bible word search for the Covenant of Works, mm-hmm. 
We get zero hits, nothing, nada. <laughs> and, right. and it sounds funny, Mike, but we do we do have listeners, and, and that's yeah. my background as well, yeah. kind of biblicism. Yeah. And so if I can't find it in a word search, it yeah. must not be true. Yeah. Sure, Can you yeah. talk about yeah. other texts? Yeah. Can you talk about why? Yeah, this is where we have to recognize that uh, there are a lot of things in the scriptures where the concept is there, but maybe the term that the church has given the concept is not there. Mm. So the the biggest and easiest example to point to is the Trinity. That's sure. that's a word that doesn't occur in the scriptures, but it points to a, a reality, i.e. the triune God that is there present in the scriptures. And so we can, and it's good and useful to use terminology so that we understand what we're talking about and, and categories. It's, it's like I tell my students this, is that, you know, Rather than the, going into the the surgical room with the doctor, and the doctor says, "You know what? You know what's the bean shape thing there? Is that is that in, is that doing okay there?" And you know, like, well, why don't we give it a name? Let, let's call it something. Why don't we call it nice. the, ki- the kidney? Yeah, nice. that's good. Okay, that's great. That every time we look at that thing, we know that's the kidney. All right, let's mark that off. Well, that's kind of what we're doing when we're when we're using theological terminology because. It's 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 an easy abbreviated way to refer to a series of different scriptural texts, you know, so that when we're talking about the Trinity, oh, we're talking about the fact that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we see in the scriptures, everywhere where they see we see them, and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we understand that they're equal, one God, three persons. Okay, so it's just a shorthand. So when we talk about the covenant of works, we're talking about, of course, that initial you know, creation as well as the giving of the command that God does, gives to Adam uh, in the Garden of Eden. And so we see that it's there. There are a number of other places that it appears, say, for example, in, you know, we'd say Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, where the Apostle Paul is uh, putting Adam and Christ in parallel mm-hmm. and saying in Romans five nineteen, as the disobedience of one constituted many as sinners, so the one act of righteousness constituted many as righteous, you know. So here you see this this contrast, this this federal relationship, this representational re- relationship that exists between Adam and those whom he represents, and Jesus, whom Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen forty five is the, the last Adam, who Jesus is the last Adam, who he um, he represents. You see it again as well. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, where Paul again invokes this Adam-Christ parallel. Now, that being said, that's, those are some of the places where we could identify as some explicit references. Another explicit reference uh, would be um, in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 5, where uh, Isaiah talks about the fact that they have violated the eternal covenant Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that's an explicit reference, and it would take some explaining as to why that refers to it there. But another similar reference is in Hosea 6-7. They, like Adam, transgressed the covenant, referring to Israel's transgression of the covenant. So those are some of the explicit places where we see it mentioned. But then you want to sometimes take a step back, and this is where you would see what I you could call the elusive or the narratival you know, pictures of the covenant of works. And by narratival, I mean where you take a step back and you see the big picture of the story, the story that's unfolding in redemptive history. And you see this, especially in the first five books of the Bible. And that this is one of the things that I point out when I argue this in the book is that in Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis 1 through 3 is one bookend. 
and Deuteronomy 28 through 30 mm. is the other bookend. And that what it does is that it closes out the, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible with these two bookends where you have Adam, God's son, in a garden environment. He's given commands and he's told to do these commands. And he said that if you're, if you're not obedient, then you're going to be cast out of my presence. And that narrative ends, that story ends with Adam's and Eve's exile from the presence of God. Okay. And then then you have here, Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. And in Deuteronomy 28 and following, you not only have the administration of the law earlier in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, but then you have it at the end where Israel swears oaths and mm-hmm. says, okay, yes, we'll be obedient. And if you disobey... You're going to be cast out of the land. You're going to be cast out of the promised land, this garden-like environment. So here, Israel, God's son, is told, obey, and if you don't obey, you'll be cast out of my presence. The, the, the faithful Israelite hearing these things, who's dialed into the frequency that's being broadcast through the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, is going to say, wait a minute, this isn't the first time that I've heard this. I've heard this before. I've heard this in the Garden of Eden. I've heard this in 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 uh, Adam's state in the garden, and so what you find written large in Israel's uh, covenant, and then their exile from the presence of God, you see in miniature uh, in the Garden of Eden, and then how this all comes to fruition is you see Adam in the garden, God's faithless son, Israel in the promised land, uh, God's faithless son, and then it comes to Jesus who is the last Adam, the faithful son. And in in terms evocative of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's tempted with food, just like Adam was tempted with food. And in a sense, you could even say just like Israel, in some sense, was tempted with their sinful appetites. But as Israel was, you know, sinning in the wilderness, as they were tempted with food, as you know, and you know, what is this manna? We want meat. We want the the leeks and the onions and the meat from the, the, the flesh pots of Egypt. Uh, and but unlike Israel, the faithless son, and Adam, the faithless son, you have Jesus, the faithful son, who he takes up the fallen work of Adam and he completes it and he fulfills it. Uh, and so that's why I say you take a step back. And you see the covenant of works writ large across the canvas of of Scripture as a whole. And so what's going on in the garden is ultimately foreshadowing what's supposed to happen with Christ. And when Paul says in Romans 5.14 that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, he's a foreshadow, he's an anticipation, a rough sketch, if you will, of of, of what who Jesus is, is supposed to be and what he's going to do. Uh, so uh, all of that is to say those are just some of the places. And in the book, I, I talk about some other passages of Scripture, but at least that's kind of the, 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 the thumbnail sketch. Sure. And, and Pactum listeners, Mr. Fesco here, John Fesco is not making this up and being creative. Uh, <laughs> the Bible explicitly says that Jesus is the Son. So even referencing Hosea 11, for mm-hmm. example, applying yeah. that to Jesus. Yeah. So Israel is the Son yeah. called out of Egypt, and then yeah. Jesus is the Son, the Son, yeah. as you were explaining. Yeah. And on that note, you know, one of the things that we should take note of is that in the Gospels, the most frequent, uh, frequently used title that Jesus uses for himself is the Son of Man. 
that's his favorite title, uh, and there are a number of reasons behind it. But where that title gets uh, first applied is you see the Son of Man spoken of in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man that you care for him? For he was made a little lower than the angels. And so here you see Adam who receives this title, Son of Man. So when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he's saying, yeah, remember Adam? I'm the one that's really going to come along and I'm going to fix things. Type and antitype, right? Shadow and fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. It's as if there's one divine author behind all of this. Imagine that. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> right? Right? That's right. Absolutely. So let's talk about the importance of the covenant of works mm-hmm. because we maybe we don't understand why it's so important in mm-hmm. particular as it would relate to redemption, mm-hmm. salvation in Christ. Mm-hmm. And then I want to lead into what happens when we reject it or downplay mm-hmm. it or mm-hmm. are ignorant about it. Yes. You know, it was a Dutch 17th century Reformed theologian that's stated this kind of aphoristically, but more or less he what says— What does aphoristically mean? Just I went kind to public of, school. Uh, <laughs> basically kind of like in a nice nice, a nice bumper sticker, if I can put it oh, that I way. Oh, I can relate. Except, Thank you for being missional. Except <laughs> it will be a really long bumper sticker that would spread across the entirety of your bumper. Okay. Uh, but he says that essentially he who does not— understand the covenant of works will misunderstand the covenant of grace and he who does not understand the nature of adam's work will not understand the necessity for the imputation of the active obedience of christ okay you know so in other words if you don't understand the nature of adam's obedience and then his disobedience you won't understand why jesus came to be obedient Mm. and if you don't understand what was required of adam in the garden of eden you won't understand, and how he failed, you won't understand what Christ has come to give us in redemption. Because so often it's the case that what happens when people talk about redemption is that they say that Jesus simply comes, he forgives us of our sins, and then he puts us back where Adam was for another shot. A mulligan. That's what yeah. Rick Warren says we get a mulligan. Yeah, it's a do-over. <laughs> is he in... still a thing? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know either. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's a do-over. And uh, and so one of the things, and Gerhardus Voss says this, and when, uh, I forget where he wrote this. So it's, it's somewhere in my computer. But anyway. It's somewhere in the Bible. It's, yeah, right? it's there, there's a verse somewhere in the yeah, Bible. God helps to help yeah. those who help themselves. Yeah, Moses 6-2. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, He said that if God were to forgive us of our sins and to put us back in the garden, it would be uh, an amazing, you know, gift of grace. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be an amazing blessing. But he says, but even greater than that, God does not simply put us back in the garden, but he puts us in a state higher than Adam ever knew. So in other words, he puts us in Christ into the new heavens and the new earth. Mm -hmm. We step into the new creation and we, I would say, irreversibly so, so that you can't fall out. Second Corinthians 5, yeah. right? if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature, new creation yeah. talk, right? New creation talk, absolutely. And so on that note, what I say is, is that, or not what I say, but any, you know, typically advocates of the covenant of works and ultimately, you know, the Bible, uh, is the idea that, you know, what Adam failed to do, uh, Christ comes to fulfill, and he fulfills it on our behalf. Uh, so that God does not rewrite Adam's work of the covenant of works. He simply sends somebody who will faithfully fulfill it and fulfill it for us. And so that's the whole blessing of the covenant of grace. And it's like if you take a look at, you know, and I'm probably 
going to go way too fast over this, but all I can do is just, I'll just toss it out there, is that, you know, the beginning of the Bible looks so much like the end of the Bible, and conversely Hmm. so, back and forth, in that in the beginning, God tells Adam, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill all the earth, and subdue it. Fill it up with image bearers, people who bear my image. Well, the end of the Bible has this this uh, cube, this massive cube, 1,500 cubed miles, this massive cube that descends out of the heavens, and it's filled with image bearers. And that was the size of the known world in John's day in the book of Revelation. And as this, this cube, the size of the known world, comes, at, comes down out of heaven, filled with image bearers, those who bear the image of the last Adam, as Paul mm-hmm. says, the man from heaven, you know, in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five and following, this is this is what Adam was supposed to do, and so this is you know this is this is why it looks like that. So, you know, you could say that the Bible ends with the bookend, as it begins with the bookend, as it as, as it begins like it's it ends like it started, uh, with that goal in mind. But it always had Christ in view as the one who would complete it and fulfill it. But you know, to add, to to add one more you know level to this is to say that. So often it's the case, and this is what's wrapped up in the covenant of works, I think, is that what's necessary for eternal life is not just simply the forgiveness of sins, but rather a fulfilling of God's command. And so it's not just don't eat from the tree. Remember, as we started off at the beginning, it's fill all the earth and subdue it. There's a command there. There's a positive command. And so Christ comes along and we we typically in the church, we understand, if you ask this question, why did Jesus die for you? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, to pay the penalty for my sins. Okay, great. Great answer. Wonderful answer. Hold on to that. But then if you ask the follow-up question, which is, first, a lot of people don't know that there is a follow-up question. But yeah, follow-up question is, why did Jesus live for you? You don't often get, you know, right, good, good right. answers. Mm-hmm. They're like, huh, well, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Um and he lived for us throughout the entirety of his life, f- positively fulfilling the law, being completely obedient to every single jot and tittle of the law, uh, so that when God looks upon us and he sees us in Christ and we have the accredited or imputed righteousness of Jesus, he doesn't see our failings. He doesn't see just merely a blank slate. He sees a completely full slate because Jesus has come to positively fulfill that work that Adam failed to do and to fulfill the law on our behalf. And so those are the connections between the covenant of works and grace. If you don't get that connection, not you personally, but i.e. the general... It would be true of me as well, especially (laughs) true of mine, absolutely. (laughs) But the generic you, if you don't get that connection, you'll inevitably put yourself back for the mulligan to say that, okay, I've got to go. I've got an empty slate now. I've got the forgiveness of sins. I've got an empty slate now. I've got to go fulfill it. Which relates to things like assurance, Mm -hmm. which relates to our understanding of Christ. I think it is one of the reasons why it's one of my my favorite doctrines, Mm -hmm. because it's the aha moment of this was the obligation. I can't meet the obligation. Adam didn't, obviously. Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous, yes, as First John says. Yes, It's glorious. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it is. It's it's beautiful. And uh, so that's why, yeah, I... It was funny to me from the standpoint that I found a lot of treatments of the covenant of works when I was studying the history of this doctrine. And so you find it in Turrets and Coxius, you know, uh, Burkhoff, Bavink, you know, so you find it spread all over the place. But in the history of the doctrine, you know, say 
I've only found, I think it was five books devoted just specifically to that one topic. So if you think five books on the one topic of the Covenant of Works, say from the Westminster Assembly until the present day, whatever the math on that is, some 300, whatever, 50 some odd years, something like that, plus, I'm terrible at math. If aliens ever came to the planet and said, here, (laughs) solve this quadratic equation or the planet gets destroyed, I'm like, well, everybody start kissing goodbye to everybody because you're all going to die. But um, only five books in 350 plus years on this topic. And I thought, we need some more. So I thought, well, why don't I I'll try write to... Two. I'll, 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 I'll write one, you know? Uh, you know, so, so yeah. Speaking of that, let's talk about who the opponents are, maybe why there haven't been books written about it. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking about opponents of the Covenant of Works, like being those who don't like Sola Fide, mm-hmm. um, Roman Catholicism, traditionally at least. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Karl Barth. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of John Piper, dispensationalist, mm-hmm. biblicist, the list goes mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Are there any commonalities? Or maybe why didn't Barth like it? Why yeah. is Barth so popular? Yeah. Why do people call him Barth? <laughs> I have so many questions for you, John. So many questions. I, I feel like it should be Wayne and Barth from Wayne's World uh, instead of Garth, but okay. And I just dated myself terribly there. Oh, we can we can add a soundbite to the, to, <laughs> to the episode. Yeah. Uh-huh. What's Wayne's World? I'm Wayne's kidding. World? Okay. <laughs> You you just were tempting me to bust out in an imitation. I was. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, Yeah, Bart is a... He's a hot mess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So as as you're developing that thought, it's obvious why people who don't like justification by grace alone through faith alone Mm -hmm. on account of the finished work of Christ alone Mm -hmm. wouldn't like the covenant of works, Mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. Because if Christ fulfills it, it comes to us freely. yes. So it does make logical sense to me why maybe someone who believes in justification yeah. by faith and works yeah. would reject it. Yeah. But now let's get to the the matter of of Karl Barth and mm-hmm. why people are enamored with him. Yeah. You know, my- I think that on the one hand, people are enamored with him because he's one of the few recent contemporary theologians that had a, a popular following. I mean— if I'm, memory serves me correctly, he was on the cover of Time magazine. April 1962. There you, know? you go. Just a, just a random fact. There. Okay, random fact. I did not know that. <laughs> but so he makes the cover of Time. That's kind of like, oh, wow. That's, that's, he's so significant. He's so culturally sure. influential. You know, so I think that there's, there's that. Second, um, I think Karl Barth said this about it was either Luther or Calvin that they're a black forest. They're so huge. There's so many places where you can get lost. Mm. Well, that's certainly true of Bart. You know, 14 volumes of his uh, church dogmatics, and he still didn't finish them. Uh, you see these massively packed, dense footnotes in an eight-point font, and it just goes on forever. He's learned. There's a lot of information there. So, you know, and this is not to say that there's nothing worthwhile there. I would never want to make such a sweeping statement. But on the other hand... Okay, Pactum listeners, um, <laughs> don't listen to what Mr. Fesco is saying right now. <laughs> now, in academia, everybody has to quote Bart. I don't know why, but I wish they would get over it. But dear listeners, if you're not an academician and you hear someone promote Karl Bart, please run. Run. Please yeah. go somewhere else. Go the other so, way. All right, now, now we're going to let you talk uh, again. No, John. I'll say this is that, you know, can you read him for profit versus somebody else? Well, let's just say this, that 
you got to do a lot of work to to, to 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 find profit in them. In other words, if we're talking for gold, gold and diamonds and stuff, there are much better mines elsewhere mm. that you're much going to be more. It's going to be a much more profitable use of your time. Now that being said, why does Bart dislike the Covenant of Works? Why does he reject it? And there's some technical stuff behind it that I'll try to cut through to say this is that Bart believed that you had to go about theology in a different method than older theology, say, from the patristics up until his day, up until, say, the 19th century. Bart was under the impression and idea that following Immanuel Kant, a philosopher that you definitely don't want to waste your time reading, it's very, you know, thick prose. But anyway, uh, so yeah, see, I'm helping. Okay, good, uh, good. But anyway, <laughs> he says, you build a system by by taking one point and from that one point that one doctrine that one idea you deduce the whole system okay and so for bart the 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 singular starting point is christ now so he's christ centered so it sounds good yes it sounds very uh-huh. pious it sounds mm-hmm. very good uh but and then about adam he says a number of things. First of all, he says about the covenant of works that it's essentially Pelagianism. And what is Pelagianism? Works righteousness, works-based salvation, because he says, look, uh, look at this. It's it's works salvation because Adam is, um, he's obeying on his own steam, and he's, you know, God says, you do this, and I'll give this to you. Now, again, considering that Christ has to be your starting point, and grace has to be your starting point, well, then that criticism of the covenant of works makes sense. Uh, A second reason that he, I think, rejects it is because, again, he has Christ swallow everything. Christ swallows everything. All theology is Christology. All theology has to begin with grace. And it's not just general grace, but salvific grace. And so if that's the case, then there's no place for natural categories. There's no place for the covenant of works. There's no place uh, for... you know, uh, natural law, for example, right. because those are natural categories. Those are categories supposedly that exist outside of, of salvation in Jesus. And even he goes as so far as to say that the the, um, the Genesis narrative is mythical history. It's not literal history. It's just saga or myth, which means that it's just a story that is told to explain in a sense how we got here, but it's not necessarily historical. So he doesn't have much need or place for Adam in his theology because he has Jesus. But one of the things that I say about this is that, and there, the opinions are divided, but I, I think it's a fair criticism, so I'll, I'll, I'll launch it. Okay, good, um, good. But I don't see how you can maintain a historic doctrine of Christ as it's been defined by the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon and Constantinople, um, you know, that God or Christ is fully God and fully man if there's no historical Adam. And not only is there no historical Adam, but there is no Adamic work. In other words, there is no covenant of works because what happens is that everything that's going on in the covenant of works with the historical Adam is the man in the God-man. So what you're doing in, in with Adam in the covenant of works— Not according to Bart, but according to reality. According to reality. Okay. That's right. That's why, you know, so it's it's problematic for Bart the way he puts things together. And I want to say that, no, 
the, it, the covenant of works is establishing the man of the God-man. Mm-hmm. Adam was a type of the one who mm-hmm. was to come. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the covenant of works is so, so, so important, is that it's establishing, if we can put it this way, the categories and the work for Christology. Uh, you know, in other words, that Jesus comes to take up this work. He comes as a man, as the last Adam. So if you chop away the Adam, well, then how can he be the last Adam? Gotcha. You know, and so that that's 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 with you know that's the problem there. And I think that what happens is that I, I talk about this in the book that I'd prefer not to refer to Adam's state as one of grace, benevolence, love, kindness. Uh, you know, all of those things are good things, but I want to reserve grace for God's favor towards us as fallen creatures. Um, you know, and I think you see something of this, uh, just a, a tinge of this in the opening chapter of John's Gospel when he says, for the law came through Moses, but grace mm-hmm. I came, see. came okay. through Jesus Christ. Uh, now, the the tradition is is full of theologians who will talk about God's grace to Adam. But then you exp- you listen to how they explain it, and it sounds it's it's different than the type of grace that we know. Like John Owen, for example, he you know I I, I like to push a few buttons. If you want to talk about Adam being in grace in the covenant of works, then you have to say it's resistible, and it is not only resistible but it's ineffectual. Hmm. Uh, which the grace that we know of in Christ is irresistible hmm. and effectual. Okay. Because Adam fell. Right, right. So that's why I, I'd rather not use the word grace because it might confuse things. Right. And so just it's just a little terminological thing that I want to say. Let's let's be a little bit more careful with our language. But and this this would also relate, perhaps in my mind, it does. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But with law and gospel, mm-hmm. and it becomes gospel, mm-hmm. and you ruin both law and you ruin mm-hmm. gospel mm-hmm. because you don't have the distinctions. Yeah. Covenant of works, yeah. covenant of grace. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. So. I know we don't have a whole lot of time here, but I do want to maybe um, talk about dispensationalism just okay. a little bit mm-hmm. because I come out of that background. Um, do you come out of that background? You went to a um, vaguely so. I mean, just kind of more generically so. I mean, it was my default position for uh, eschatology, as it okay. is for many folks. Sure, just because of its you know popularity. But well, uh, yeah. generally speaking, dispensationalists don't like classic traditional covenant mm-hmm. theology categories: covenant mm-hmm. of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. Mm-hmm. Some don't mind them, but generally speaking, but I find it um, interesting as to why. Uh, number one, and I also find it interesting as to why you don't ever address dispensationalism uh, in your books. Is it is it so academically just irrelevant that nobody cares? Because I'm always looking for responses to crazy dispensationalists, and you're not really helping me. <laughs> that's because I point you to the Bible, <laughs> the, yeah, ultimate, that's a, that's the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate weapon and sword. Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I think part of it is is because one of the things that I do is I – anytime that I go to write a, on a doctrine, I do my best to study the history of it because I don't want to say stuff that I just – you know, that that's either wrong or maybe I think, hey, I've got a great idea here okay. and, oh, no, this was a bad idea right. or, oh, no, this is my great idea that I thought was mine. There's actually two or three guys that have actually said it before me, so let me give them credit. And so in the history of it, they just don't come up really in the discussion. 
Now, maybe part of that is because I'm, you know, looking at things more in the history of the Reformed tradition. But even when I study the history of the Reformed tradition in the 20th century, I don't find much engagement with those particular issues. And I think maybe because those debates were happening on a different level. And it's just because when you look at the Reformed history or the history of the Reformed tradition um, as it came out of the Protestant Reformation, their method of interpreting the Bible is just so radically different okay. than what you find, say, in 19th or especially 20th century dispensational theology, that they're almost worlds apart, and that's why they just don't intersect much. Okay. It's, um, like, it's like they've been left behind. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's That was low-lying fruit. Man, come, come on. Come on. But I had to do it. It's, it's like, they're, it's like they're, they're parallel universes, and unless somebody specifically goes to engage it, uh, then um, uh, then then you're not going to get much interaction between them. Now, that being said, you've inspired me. And it's funny, I was just thinking this. It was strange. I cannot tell you, there have been a number of books that I've read, that, or sorry, that I've written, no joke, that they have been inspired by one sentence that somebody has said to me. And I can think of two or three, just two or three individual sentences, lone sentences that I think, hmm. I think I want to say something about that. Okay, You've, You good. have inspired me by jo- that one question. Well, well John, John Nelson Darby did not like the things we've been talking about, <laughs> yeah. and he was quite the piece of work being against these things. Yeah. Well, it's see, here's, fascinating. here's the thing is that I've been uh, contracted uh, to write a, a, an introduction to covenant theology, and it's supposed to be short, but just because it's short doesn't mean that it can't address some of those issues. So, like I said, you've inspired me. So now okay. that's on the go. radar. I've got some quotations that I will sell to you at a good price. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I've got several pigs that I can trade. Okay. <laughs> this is a positive and, deal. And maybe a goat. <laughs> okay. Unclean animals. Yes. <laughs> Notice. <laughs> so, John, throughout the episode, you've mentioned aliens. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about opponents and maybe some wars. So I'm thinking space. You talked about universe. Mm-hmm. And I know you're a big Star Wars fan, yes, right? Absolutely. So I, kn- been, I knew this was going to come I've up. Been it had wanting, to come up. Listen, this is super important information here. This is an insider scoop from an authority on the matter. Right. What is the proper order in which you're supposed to watch the Star Wars saga, for one? And for two, do episodes seven, eight, and nine even count? The people want to know. What does this have to do with Wayne's World? All right. Everything. Uh, The answer to the first question is, is I'll give George Lucas's answer. Start with episode one. Okay. And just roll on forward. Authorial intent from the historian. Yeah. But I will say this, though. It's like I told my wife this on that issue. I said it's so strange that my kids will never have the aha moment that I did when yep. I was when I was 10 years old and I saw the empire strikes back I was right. like oh, what yes um so so there's that you know they just were like well duh yeah of course <laughs> that, you know hello dad Didn't you know uh so that's the first question second question is yeah i mean i'm a star wars uh i mean it's like my brother once told me he said you care about the acting in Star Wars? <laughs> he says, you'd go to see Star Wars if I was in it. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's true. Okay, so, I mean, if you say lightsabers, TIE fighters, right. I'm in. So it's like, I, I'm, I, you know, I'll do it. So, yeah, I, I like 7, 8, and 9, but the way I look at it is that they all have their, their, their strengths and their weaknesses, and I look at them at, like chapters in a book rather than standalone films. And that, you know, for me, yeah, the, the, some, the best chapters are 4, 5, and yeah, 6. yeah. And one, two, and three are good in many ways, 
the acting is really mm, bad, bad, bad. But it's like there's lightsabers. Yeah, it's true, right? And then the special <laughs> effects in seven, eight, and nine are amazing. Yes. The practical effects. Yeah. The acting is great. The stories, maybe not as good. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, and in fact, but see, here's the thing. Okay, this is going to tie back to the Bible. Yeah, I, I was going to say, gonna make it work for the coming works. Come on. This is going to tie back to the Bible. I'm ready to. I'm here for it. I've watched an interview with Lucas where he says that he intentionally has done this with his movies, that the movies are are like lines of parallel poetry. Hmm. So the 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 scene that takes place before the Emperor, where you know he's battling Vader's battling Dooku in Episode Three. Yep. That mirrors the same chamber scene later in Revenge or Return of the Jedi, yeah. where it's Vader and it's uh, you know it's it's Luke in front of the Emperor, yeah. and it's it's done that way on purpose. So I'm not saying he's echoing Hebrew poetry, right? But it is a, a common storytelling method that you find even in the Bible with Adam right, right. and Jesus. How yeah. I pulled that off, I, I mean, that's amazing if you think about I it. I think that was... <laughs> see, that's why I wanted to ask these important <laughs> issues. I knew it. So is it important for people's sanctification to watch Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but... <laughs> I, I appreciated a church one time, and I referenced uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And afterwards, somebody said, oh, that was a great illustration. And, and I said, well, I wasn't really sure, you know, what people thought about movies here. And he goes, well, as long as you don't talk about Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Oh, How about Mandalorian? Do you like Mandalorian? Yeah, I love it. It's great. It's, I, I, it's like one of, one of my colleagues, uh, Ben Glad, is a huge Star Wars nut, too. Okay. And we're always comparing Star Wars memorabilia and stuff. He's got a lot of Lego stuff. In fact, he's got the supersized Millennium Falcon <laughs> oh. uh, in Lego. But anyway, I digress. Um we, he's of the opinion, and I think it's probably possible that these Disney, sh- uh, sh- you know, plus kind of mm-hmm. shows could be the future of the Star Wars, uh, you know, universe in that they're right. high quality. They can flesh out a story, you know, great special effects, you know. So, yeah, I'm I'm psyched about Boba Fett coming yeah. out this December. Can't okay, wait. I like Mandalorian. I thought yeah. it was good. I thought uh, who's the comedian? I thought he was really good. Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought I've heard that guy before, and he's funny. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. yep. he's a comedian. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the new book is coming out in mm-hmm. America soon, um, sometime shortly. A couple of weeks, I think. Yep. I looked at the t- uh, chapter titles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a chapter, Do This and Live, mm-hmm. Luke chapter 10. That'll be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a chapter on Grace and the Covenant of Orcs, talking mm-hmm. about things you just talked about. Right. Uh, Law written on your heart yep. will be great. Grace and merit in the covenant of works. Mm-hmm. So I would really encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of that book. Uh, this is going to be the easier one to read than the Oxford well, Press one. Is the it Oxford, Oxford Press? Yeah, Oxford Press. That's just the history of the doctrine. Okay. You know, whereas the second one is the doctrine itself. But I do have a section where I talk about other historical top issues topically that I didn't mention really in the other book. Okay. So like, for example, in this one book— uh, in the second one, um, the one that's coming out, there's a history of the interpretation of Leviticus 18.5. Because so many people think, how can you cite Leviticus 18.5, do this and live? It's embedded in the middle of the mm. Mosaic Covenant, and right. the Mosaic Covenant's a part of the Covenant of Grace. How is that possible? Well, I trace the history of the interpretation of that verse so that when I talk about it exegetically, people go, okay, I've got the context of that conversation. Good, good. 
Uh, so that's just one of the examples. Or why is it called the covenant of works? Why is it called the covenant of life? Why is it called the covenant of nature? Why is it called the covenant of creation? I talk about all the different names that it goes under and why. Uh, so those are just some of the things. I Super. Looking forward to it. And I would encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of that book as soon as you you can get a copy. Um, if you'd like to know more about John Fesco or keep up with him, if you'd like to connect with him, uh, you can find him on Twitter at at JV Fesco. Also, he has a website, www.jvfesco.com. You can also find him at rts.edu. John, thank you so much for answering our questions. It has been a real joy. Hey, likewise. Thanks for having me, guys, and uh, blessings to you guys and your podcast. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you very much. We want to thank you, our listeners, for listening. As always, you can find us on Twitter at The Pactum and on Insta, Insta, I'm supposed to Insta, say. Insta, the kids Insta, are saying. Okay. Insta. Find us on the Insta at The Pactum Theology. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you here next time on The Pactum. The Pactum.